Well, let's begin today and let's end today by focusing on the wonder of what it is to be vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, the riches of knowing the glory of God or knowing the riches of the glory of God. I want you to see this. You know, whatever we may not fully understand in these difficult verses, which we focused on last week, whatever we may not understand fully, one thing is really clear, and that is the ultimate purpose of God, the ultimate purpose of wrath, the ultimate purpose of power, the ultimate purpose of mercy. We know the ultimate goal and purpose and design of God in this text and in the universe because it says so clearly in verse 23. So that's what I want us to focus on mainly this morning. God's purpose, his ultimate purpose, it says, is to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you with your lips confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are a vessel of mercy. That's what it means to be a Christian. A vessel of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. That is, to know the riches of the glory of God. So I ask you, I plead with you now, downtown and here, I plead with you, open your heart to this truth. Open your heart to what it means to be a vessel of mercy prepared before the creation of the world and in many clay-pounding ways in this life to be a recipient of the full-orbed knowing of the riches of the glory of God. Prepare your heart. Open your heart to say, all right, if that's who I am, I want to receive that. I want to know and experience the fullness of what it is to be a vessel of mercy designed beforehand to know the riches of the glory of God. Open your hearts to that as we focus on three things. One, what does it mean to be a vessel of mercy? Two, what does it mean to be prepared beforehand for glory? And third, what does it mean to know the riches of the glory of God? And the three words I'm going to focus on in those three phrases are mercy, glory, and riches. So it's all in verse 23, although I will spill over into verse 24 before we are done. Number one, mercy. Let's read verse 23 again. I hope that you know verse 23 by heart by the time we're done, because I'm going to say it over and over again as we try to unpack the wealth of this verse. To make known this is the purpose of God for your existence Indeed, the purpose of the universe to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. 
As a Christian, you are a vessel of mercy. You were called, whether Jew or Gentile, you were called out of darkness into light, out of death into life in order to be a vessel of mercy. By mercy and through mercy and for mercy, you have come into existence as a Christian. By mercy, through mercy and for mercy. By mercy, because in our rebellion... We didn't deserve to be awakened and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift. It's a mercy that you are a Christian. Through mercy, because every influence that ever worked on us to bring us to Jesus Christ was an influence by mercy, worked in mercy. It was through mercy that you were influenced and brought to put your faith In Jesus Christ. For mercy, because every enjoyment that you will ever have forever and ever will be a merciful enjoyment. And mercy itself will be at the pinnacle of the joys in which you delight forever and ever. So by mercy, you became a Christian. And through mercy, you became a Christian. And for the enjoyment of mercy, you became a Christian. That's what it means to be a vessel of mercy. Which means that in all of our thinking about election, unconditional election, and why I am saved, and not another, we should continually focus on this. We do not deserve to be Christians. That's just got to sink in with this doctrine. Because if you don't feel that, I mean feel it, not just say it and believe it, you will turn this doctrine into something ugly. We do not deserve to be Christians. I don't deserve to be chosen or called or saved or transformed or heaven bound. It is all mercy. It is all undeserved. Nothing in me, nothing in you was the decisive influence that moved God to choose you or save you or sanctify you or give you a destiny in heaven. Nothing decisively in you moved the hand of God to do that. The decisive movement originated in God. And therefore, it is all mercy and we don't deserve to be in this room. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to be accepted. We don't deserve to have hope. And therefore, we should tremble with a sense that my whole life rests on the absolute sovereign mercy of my Maker. And oh, what a humbling and hope-giving truth that is. I say humbling to the believer and hope-giving to the unbeliever in this room who says, well, am I included? And the answer is, mercy abounds in this room. I will ask you at the end, have you heard his call? Come on in. I hope you hear his call through this word. He is speaking.
Therefore, the words of Jesus, mark this very carefully. The words of Jesus fly over this room and that room downtown. The words of Jesus fly like a banner over this room. They're like a a trumpet call. And they sound like this. Freely you have received. Freely give. Mercy begets mercy. We become merciful people by having been shown mercy. And as we become merciful people, more and more mercy comes our way in response to our showing mercy. Blessed are the merciful for they're going to receive more mercy. It starts in God's mercy. It rises up in our mercy and we get back more mercy. Oh God, please don't let the doctrine of unconditional election in this church or any church produce clickishness. Bigotry, provincialism, narrow-minded, small-souled indifference to perishing people. Oh, God, let the doctrine of unconditional mercy-laden election produce mercy. If it doesn't produce mercy in your life, you've not seen any of it. So that's my prayer that when we hear this phrase, vessels of mercy, the last thing we would do is put our thumbs in our suspenders and say, anything like that, but rather be on our faces. It can't be that I would be chosen to be a vessel of mercy. Surely then I must spend all my days and all my hours and all my prayers and all my energy to gather as many into being vessels of mercy as I can. I must show mercy and spend mercy and be mercy. I must lay down my life in mercy in order to bring more people into the experience of being vessels of mercy. Oh, if this doctrine does not produce that effect, we do not know it. Freely, mercifully, you have received. Freely, spend your life to give. And then you will know you've tasted of the mercy. Test yourself. Are you in the faith? Are you merciful? Psalm 23 is so familiar, we don't linger over its phrases. Linger over its phrases. (laughs) It's not by accident that this is everybody's favorite psalm, almost. And there is one phrase. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all of my days. Do you believe that? 
The Hebrew word radaf is pursue. Surely goodness and mercy will track me down every day in order to be poured out on me. That's what it means. Every day you will enjoy mercy. Not one day will go by, but that you will be shown mercy. The day of your highest delights and the day of your most painful death, you will be a vessel of mercy, Christian. That's why I said a minute ago, open your hearts to this, because so many of you know that what I'm saying is true, and you don't feel this. You don't feel it because it hasn't gotten there yet. So I'm just asking you, as I preach, be praying, be praying, oh God, make me know down here, deep in the bottom of my being, what it is to be a vessel of mercy. What it is to be pursued by the almighty galaxy creating God with mercy every day of my pain-filled life. Make me to believe that in my heart. That there are not some days that are merciful days and some days that are unmerciful days. Every day for a Christian is a merciful day. God has nothing but mercy for his children Nothing but mercy for his children. That is not a rhetorical overstatement. It is an absolute fact. Everything works together for good for those who love God. All of the pain will turn for your good. Everything is mercy from your father's hand. Even his discipline. That's point number one. Number two. Prepared beforehand for glory. Prepared beforehand for glory. Let's read verse 23 again. His purpose is to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, the focus is on God's glory, I believe, not our glory. It is not false to say that I will one day be glorified. Romans 8.30. I will one day participate in glory. In the sense that it will stream into me and out from me. So that we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. I just don't think that's what's in this verse. I think prepared beforehand for glory means what the first part of the verse says. Namely, he desires to make known the riches of his glory. So the last part of the verse, I think, is referring to the first part. And prepared beforehand for glory means prepared beforehand to know, see, savor, enjoy, and treasure God's riches of glory. You were made to know glory. The word prepared, I think, simply underlines everything we've been saying about mercy. You did not fit yourself to know the glory of God. God did. You didn't prepare yourself. Right now, if there's any slight spiritual taste in your heart for what I'm saying about the glory of God, so that there's just a little mustard seed of delight in what I'm saying, in the hope that it will grow into a flower, that little mustard seed, you did not prepare. God did. 
God prepared you to see and know His glory. He prepared you for glory. And He did it out of the same lump from which came people who have no heart for the glory of God at all. And He took this lump in your case and He squeezed it and He pushed it and maybe right now in your life He is pounding it. I don't know. I'm sure he is. It's a big room, and that's a big room. And some of you are being pounded. That is not destruction. Receive it as mercy, and it is mercy. Until you become a vessel to mercifully see and savor with infinite joy the glory of God. So I think that word prepared is simply to underline the word mercy. If you have any ability to see and savor the glory of God, it's because He gave it to you. He prepared you to see and know Him. So let it sink in. If you're a Christian this morning, or if you are willing to become a Christian here, if you're willing to trust Jesus as Lord and forgiver, Savior, righteousness of your life, you were prepared to know the glory of God. This is his ultimate purpose, to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. And I just plead with you to get a hold of this. You say it very carefully. Here's the second point that we're working on right now. Christian, those willing to become Christians... You were made, made, designed. Your brain exists, your body exists, your emotions exist to know the glory of God. Let that sink in. Because I have found in my life that when that began to sink in, in about 1968, everything changed. And I have seen people Change. When it sinks in, I am made to know the glory of God. I'm not made to make money. I'm not made mainly to be a family man or a housewife or a mother. Those are gloriously beautiful things. I'm not sure about making money. But fathering and mothering. But in it all, businessman, businesswoman, nurse, computer, carpenter, bricklayer, mother, father, high school student, junior high, grade school student, retired person, widower, widow, you were made to know the glory of God. That's why you exist to know. Now, be careful here. Do not intellectualize the word no. You see that word no in verse 23? To make known. His goal is to make known, to make known here in me a vessel of mercy, his glory. Don't intellectualize that word no. It cannot mean be aware of intellectually while feeling indifferent. Say it again. To know the glory of God in this text cannot mean to know intellectually, to be aware of intellectually while feeling indifferent about it. 
cannot mean that. That would not be a mark of a vessel of mercy. That would be a mark, possibly, of a vessel of wrath. What does chapter 1 say? Do you remember chapter 1? Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who exchange the glory of God for images resembling mortal man. So if you see and know the glory of God and trade it, For something you prefer more, you are in danger of proving yourself to be a vessel of wrath and not a vessel of mercy. Do not intellectualize the word knowing as if all this text means is know with your head a few facts about the glory of God. This text means by know something richer and deeper than that it is not God's purpose to be known as glorious and exchanged. It's one of the dangers of coming to church, especially if you're new, is that you're hearing things which now you could leave and trade away for sin. You're being handed infinitely valuable truth about the glory of God. It's being painted and portrayed for you as the treasure of your life and that for which you were made. And the danger is that you might take it into your intellectual hands, walk out a door, and trade it away. That's scary. Don't do that. Paul says God's purpose is to make known God's glory for the vessels of mercy. And what he means is known as infinitely precious and infinitely pleasing. That's what he means. When he says to make known the riches of his glory, he means to make known the riches of his glory as the treasure of your life, as infinitely precious, as infinitely pleasing in your life. That's the way he means for it to be known. Now my question very practically is, do you live for this? Let's be really honest now. Ask yourself this question. Sitting there downtown here. Do I live, do I live to know the glory of God? Do I spend my energy my mind's efforts, my emotional energies, my bodily movements? Do I design my life and my days in order to get more and more knowing as treasure, knowing as precious, knowing as pleasing of the glory of God into my life? And if you say no, I wonder why. I wonder why. I want to help you here. I lingered here a long time in my preparation trying to think how I could help you here. So I'm going to try. So I've got lots of people in mind here that I know would have a hard time answering that question yes. 
Yes, I give my life to know the glory of God. Yes, I bend every effort to increase my enjoyment of the glory of God. Yes, that's what my life is about. Someone might say, no, it's not. I I can't answer yes to that because, frankly, it feels impossible to me where I am. Talk to people like that. It's just impossible. It just feels impossible. I couldn't ever be like that. I see you. You're sort of like that. I look around. There seem to be a lot of people like that at Bethlehem. And I can't. It is not possible for me to devote myself to pursue the glory of God and to enjoy the glory of God and to delight in the glory of God and treasure the glory of God. I just, that language is like Greek to me. It's just, now to you, I would say it is impossible. That's exactly what the rich young ruler said, right? I mean, that's what Jesus said to him. Give it away. I'm here. I'm your treasure. Come follow me. I'm here. And he turned away. And Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. And then he said, not with God. So if you're saying to yourself right now, it's impossible. I can't be like that. I can't be a real bona fide Christian. Then hear me, that's true. And nobody ever became a Christian because it was possible for man. It is possible with God. Ask him. Plead with him. Come to the front afterwards and let me plead with him for you. Second person I have in mind. Maybe you say, I don't want to see his glory. I want to be glory. I don't want to see glory. I want to be glorious. Maybe that's, maybe you don't articulate it quite that way, but really that's what you want. You like the, the praise of men. Your joy is not in admiring another's beauty, but getting others to see yours. There's some really scary things I could say to you about that. But perhaps I should just say this. If you seek your own glory, Rather than seeking the Savior's glory, rather than, than seeking to see God's glory, you are going to be bitterly disappointed. Because in the end, you're not going to be glorious. And everybody will turn away. I say it again. If you're being driven right now by being made much of by people because you're something or want to be something, you're going to be bitterly disappointed because in the end, you're not going to be glorious and they're going to turn away. And all that you will have left is maybe No capacity to enjoy the glory of God because you've wanted your own all your life long. I pray that not happen. I said a minute ago, if you want to pray about it, come here and I'll pray with you. Go there too. And prayer teams will pray with you downtown. 
I have a third person in mind. What if a person says, I can't do this. I, 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 you talk about, I'm created to see and savor the glory of God. Frankly, the thought of vanishing into a crowd of people ogling at some artistry is unappealing to me. I want to accomplish something with my life. So you have this image in your mind that I'm calling you to stand with a big nameless crowd looking at glory. Say, oh, wow, look at the glory. And you don't want to be a part of a big crowd. You want to do something. You want to make something happen. Create something. What should I say to you? Two things. One, beware of how you speak of those who praise the glory of God. And second, all of history shows and today proves those who see the glory of God most accomplish most for this world. I'll say that again. You feel torn between being a part of a great assembly of little childlike people who are thrilled that they have been granted to see the most awesome spectacle of the universe, namely its maker face to face, because you want to do something. Those who have seen this most do most. Mark it down. Do most. For the world. See little of God, do little for the world. See much of God, you will do much for the world. Don't you remember Paul's words? 2 Corinthians 3.18 Beholding, beholding the glory of the Lord, we, by beholding, are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. God beholding people are God reflecting people and God reflecting people are not fruitless. Don't ever play those two off against each other. As though to be a part of a great assembly of Worshippers would make you fruitless and without a great possible contribution to this fallen, blind, dead, God-ignoring world. I have one more person in mind who says, I can't follow, I can't do this. I can't pursue what you say I'm made for to know the glory of God. Because I have no taste for it. And therefore, never having tasted it, I have no desire. I've tasted television. It's really good. I get drawn there strong. I've tasted pornography. That's really powerful. I get drawn there and it gives me a buzz. I've tasted alcohol or I've tasted drugs or I've tasted wealth or I've tasted power. We've tasted these things. I know what these are. I can pursue these. 
You talk glory. Nothing. Zero on my tongue. What can I say to you? I'm not here to condemn. Jesus didn't come to condemn, and I'm not here to condemn. I want to help you. Listen carefully. The glory of God that you were made for is shining everywhere in the world and in the Bible. You live and move and have your being in God. When the psalmist says, the heavens are telling the glory of God, it doesn't mean that's God's glory. It means that's a pointer to God's glory. The huge magnificence bending over the bow of the earth on a sunrise or a sunset. And that splendid array of colors and that power, that evocative power to awaken in us amazing emotions. It's all a witness. It's all in fact an appetizer of the meal called the glory of God. And you've been there. A man came up to me 23 years ago in this church. He's not here anymore. But he came up, and after hearing a sermon about the glory of God, he said, I have no relation to what you're talking about at all. I said, I do not believe you. And I don't believe any of you who say that, who say you totally disconnected from what I'm saying here in the glory of God. I said, doesn't, doesn't anything move you? Have you had any profound experience with anything? And he stopped and he said, there was a camping trip in the Boundary Waters with my son when we lay down at night and looked up into the sky. And I said, okay, now we're there. Now we're there. Take the music of your soul at that moment and transpose it into another key called worship for the maker of that. Because if that moved you, how much more would the one who by the tip of his finger flung it into being? C.S. Lewis wrote this. Oh, how it moved me years ago when I first read it. I dug around and found it again in The Four Loves Yesterday. Nature never taught me that there exists a God of glory and of infinite majesty. I had to learn that in other ways. But nature gave the word glory a meaning for me. I do not see how the fear of God could have ever meant to me anything but the lowest prudential efforts to be safe if I had never seen certain ominous ravines and unapproachable crags. And if nature had never awakened certain longings in me, Huge areas of what I can now mean by love for God would never, so far as I can see, have existed. Everyone in this room has tasted an appetizer of the meal called the glory of God. I'll just ask you a few 
Have you ever looked up? Have you ever been hugged? Have you ever admired anything? Have you ever sat in front of a warm fire? Have you ever tasted sexual desire? Have you ever walked in the woods, sat by a lake, swung in a summer hammock under a shady tree? Have you ever drunk your favorite drink on a hot day? Have you ever eaten anything good? Every desire is either a devout or a distorted enticement to the glory of God in heaven. Every one of them. God did not create the world mainly to be a temptation to idolatry. He created appetizers everywhere. So you who say, I've never tasted, I can't feel what you're saying, I'm pleading with you. Let the music of your soul be tuned, transposed, because it's already playing if you're human. The best place to tune your soul is the cross of Jesus. If you want to make sure that you don't misread the glory of God out there in the world where it's shining every day, tune the fork to the cross. Go to the Gospels and read the story of Jesus and say, Lord, open my eyes to see your glory in your Son. What does it say? We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to get your eyes fixed right, your ears tuned right, your heart, your taste buds right? Look at the cross. Look at Christ crucified. Look at him risen. And that will tune everything about you so that as you walk out of this room and look into the sky, whether it's cloudy or the sun is shining, when you feel cold in the ends of your fingertips, there will be glory there. God will be there because you have tuned your heart to the cross. I just plead with you, don't throw your life away. You were made to know His glory. If you say, I can't, I won't, I'm going to watch TV to get my kicks, I'm going to do all the other stuff horizontally that are here to do, you will waste your life and lose it in the end. That's number two, finally. Number three, the word riches. Let's go to verse 23 again. God's purpose is to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. To make known the riches of his glory. Let's focus on the word riches as we get ready to close. Why did he use the word riches? Wealth, for this reason, so that we would be awakened to the truth that to have God's glory as our inheritance makes all the wealth of this world as nothing. If you had all the money in Fort Knox or the Fort Knox of all the nations of the world, you'd be 
a pauper compared to those who have the glory of God and nothing else. That's why he uses the word wealth. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that is increased your potential enjoyment of the glory of God by loving it here, living for it here, sacrificing for it here, lowering your life standard here so that there's more of God and less of the world here, pouring mercy out through your bank accounts and out of your pockets so that you learn what it is to receive God's mercy. Oh, this word riches is amazing when you do a study of it. it is unimaginable, Paul said. Listen to this word. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. The riches of the glory of God are unimaginable or immeasurable. Take the word immeasurable and go to Ephesians 2, 7. In the coming ages... He will show the immeasurable riches of His glory in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Ephesians 2.7 is saying? In the coming ages, He will show, verse 23, His aim is to show the riches of His glory. He will show in the coming ages the riches of His grace in kindness. Why does He say, in the coming ages? You know why? It's going to take ages, and I would add, everlasting ages, for God to finish showing us all of the riches of His glory. Which means, we will never know all of the riches of His glory. Or better to say, we will always know every day of eternity more of the riches of His glory. The reason eternity exists for God's vessels of mercy is because these vessels will require endless days to receive new revelations of God's mercy. A finite vessel cannot receive all of the glory of God. Otherwise, we would be infinite also. And if we're infinite, then we're God. And God is no longer our God. We are God. Therefore, we will always be finite and yet moving towards infinite possibilities of joy. There will not be one boring day in eternity as I feared there would be when I was nine years old. And there will be not one day when the almost infinite pile of past revelations of glory aren't ripening in the memory, giving joy upon joy. And every morning there will be new mercies bursting as coming up over some alpine ridge upon our minds to give fresh delights, old delights ripening, fresh delights coming every day. This is the way it will be forever and ever and ever. That's why he uses the word Riches, riches of glory, inexhaustible riches, immeasurable riches, unimaginable riches. And you were made for this. Oh, if you would just get this. You turn a TV off. I know you turn it off. And you would set your face 
to see the sky. You look into your wife, your husband, your babies, or your friends' eyes and try to feel wonder. You try to get yourself ready for the magnificence of the glory instead of being drugged down into the dirt and the emptiness and the triviality and the banality and the trifling of television day after day after day, shrieking, shrieking, shrieking your capacities for spiritual, powerful joy. I just plead with you, set your face to know this glory. Set your heart to know this glory. Lay up big treasures in heaven. Don't join the world. They're so small. It's not a good deal. One thing is at stake right now in in this service here. One thing is at stake. Do you hear the call of God?